and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, Lord God, I just pray today that you uh, would bless Pastor Robin as he speaks, Lord. I pray that your spirit uh, would just fill him and you would speak to our hearts, Lord. I thank you that your presence is here and uh, that you just bless this gathering, Lord. And we are here and we are ready uh, with open hearts and listening ears to hear what you would have to say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I think when you're, you're a young Christian, um, often there's a tendency to kind of latch on to slogans and sayings that you hear people say. At least I remember that being true for me in my early days as a Christian. Now, that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing, um, Paul does that in his letters to Timothy. He, uh, he says things like, he gives Timothy some slogans. To I think he probably means them as like hooks he can use for teaching. So in 1 Timothy 1.15, for instance, he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a good slogan, okay? You can't really argue with that. So I remember... Um, a couple of slogans, a couple of quotations from my early years as a Christian. And one of them was, the church is the only institution that exists primarily, primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. Anybody else here remember hearing that? Yep. Other people have heard okay. um, I looked that up this week because I had no idea where it came from and discovered it's by the former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple. I rather like William Temple. Um, years ago, I used his uh, readings in John's Gospel in my personal devotions, and it left a lasting impression on me. However, I think he's not. I think he's a little bit wrong here, because there are other organizations that exist for the benefit of non-members. I mean, like the Rotary Club says, it exists to bring together business and professional leaders in order to provide humanitarian service and to advance goodwill and peace around the world. And actually, Marilyn and I used to work in uh, humanitarian aid, and there's lots of humanitarian aid organizations, secular ones, that exist for, member, for the benefit of non-members. And I actually know that some of those organizations and service clubs, like Rotary, put some churches to shame for the level of involvement that they have in their community, the volunteer hours that they put in serving people who are not part of their group. Sometimes we should you know, maybe look at those people and ask ourselves if we're doing as much as they are. But why do those people serve? Well, I think that for groups like Rotary, um, perhaps it's an updated version of what the French call noblesse oblige, the idea that those to whom much has been given, have a responsibility to give back into society. That's a good thing, okay? And humanitarian groups serve because they care about people. That's a good thing too. What about Christians? What about us? Why do we serve? I think William Temple was partly right, while the church may not be the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members, it is or it should be an institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. 
So this month, we're working our way through uh, the four points of St. Paul Union Church's purpose statement. It's always a good idea to know why we do what we do. Uh, So we started out with our purpose to glorify and enjoy the one true God. Then last week, we talked about our purpose to grow together in Christ-focused faith. So if you like, you can say that we started out with the upward aspect of our calling, our purpose, which is to glorify God. Then last week, we talked about the inward aspect of our calling as we uh, both challenge and encourage one another in our shared life together. So this morning, I want us to talk about our outward aspect of our calling, to give grateful service to God and to people. So why do Christians serve? I think the passage that was just read gives us some insight into why Christians serve. Starting in verse 25, it says, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we serve first and foremost because that's the model that Jesus gave us. And we claim to be followers of Jesus. So, you know, the answer to why do Christians serve is the Sunday school answer, right? Which is Jesus. John 13.3 says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. I love the way that passage starts. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So what does he do? He takes the place of the lowest slave in a first century household and washes the feet of the disciples. Think about that for a moment. What is the normal human response to being elevated to some high position? Well, one response is often to come to the conclusion that certain kinds of tasks are beneath you. You employ people to do those jobs. We were watching a a show on Netflix recently, And in one scene, a top lawyer in a legal firm is sitting in his office in the middle of the afternoon doing a crossword puzzle. One of the other partners comes in and asks, don't you have any work to do? To which he responds, dear boy, if I have work to do, I'm not doing my job properly. (laughs) That kind of sums up Jesus' characterization of what power does to people. The ruler of the Gentiles Rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But Jesus, who has the highest place in the universe, with absolute power, far above any corporate lawyer, although corporate lawyers would disagree with that, is so secure in his position that his response 
is to serve. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. They had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. John tells us two things that led Jesus to taking up the towel and washing the disciples' feet. It says, first, he knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Second, that he knew that he had come from God and was going to God. So as a result of those two things, he got up and served. He had nothing to prove. He knew who he was. He knew where he stood with the Father. He knew he was loved by the Father. He had nothing to prove. We don't have Jesus' unique position of power, but we do share his position of knowing we are loved by the Father, that we belong to God. We know who we are. We are God's children. We're secure in that knowledge. We don't have anything to prove. It's that security that allows us to serve without worrying about how that service might or might not affect our status. It's our relationship with God that gives us status, not what we do or don't do. We serve because Jesus sets an example of service. His service to us went so far as to give his life as a ransom for us. So it doesn't matter who you are, you can't outserve Jesus. The best we can do is to seek to walk in his footsteps. So we serve because Jesus served. And we serve out of gratitude. Now, most religions have some concept of religious merit. You do something good, it gets added to your account. You do something bad, it gets subtracted from your account. When you die, you hope you have more pluses and minuses. Oh, by the way, that's why... I just, uh, uh, internet's a wonderful thing. Uh, that's why uh, Turks are so kind to dogs and cats. Like, we've lived in the Muslim world for, like, you know, how long? 16, some odd years? Anyway, um, well, maybe longer. And um, when we came here, it's like, this is really weird. They look after dogs. Everywhere else in the Muslim world we've ever lived, it's like, you know, the role of dogs is to be beaten and thrown, have stones thrown at them. It's just really very, very strange. Um, apparently, the Ottomans made it a religious duty to care for stray animals. And there's actually sawab, there's actually merit that comes from caring for uh, stray animals. Now, I don't know if that's what motivates people to do it today, although one of, our, one of our language teachers did actually tell me that it is their religious duty to care for stray animals. I'm going, that's really weird. You know, it's, I think it's only in the, in the areas that were controlled by the Ottomans that that's the case. Everywhere else, it's certainly not the case, at least not in my experience. That William Temple um, quote comes from my early days as a Christian. There's another quote I remember from that period, from Thomas Erskine. He says, in the New Testament, salvation is all grace and ethics is all gratitude. Salvation is all grace and ethics is all gratitude. 
The first part of that sentence means that we can't do anything to get ourselves right with God. There's nothing we can do. Salvation is all grace. There's nothing we can do that somehow obliges God to save us. He sought us out while we're still enemies. He drew us to himself. That's grace. There's nothing I can do to make God love me more. There's nothing I can do to make God love me less. God loves me. He loves you. He loves each one of us. He loves, he loves everybody in this city. So when we serve God and people, we're not trying to get into God's good books. That's not the point. Because the second part of that sentence says, ethics is all gratitude. And that's what we're talking about today. Ethics. Your ethics are the principles that govern your behavior. They're the answer to the question, why do you do what you do? In this case, why do you serve God and people? The answer is out of gratitude because God has done so much for us. The least I can do is serve him and others in his name. How many people have seen or read Les Miserables? Les Miserables, yeah. Les Mis, as they call it. Anyway, um, that's actually based on the true story of Eugene Vidocq. So Jean Valjean is a um, former convict who trusts no one and cares for no one. And no one cares for him. He's a marked man. As a former convict, um, no one will even give him shelter for the night. No one except the bishop in one town who takes him in and feeds him and gives, a bed, gives him a bed for the night. In return for the bishop's kindness, in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean gets up, steals the silver and runs away. He's caught by the police, dragged back to the bishop's house, where in the wonderful scene, the bishop says, oh, I gave him the silver. Here, you forgot the candlesticks. And Jean Valjean does not know what to do with that kind of grace. He knows he deserves to go back to prison. But this man of God has given him a second chance. So in response to this grace, he sets out to make other people's lives better. Not to gain anything, but simply out of gratitude, grace that's shown to him. The work that we do for God and for other people, our Christian service, isn't so we can get something out of God. It's out of gratitude for, for what God has already done for us. That's why I'm so glad that the purpose statement explicitly says to give grateful service to God and people. That word grateful is important. We don't serve God and people to get anything in return. We've already received more than we could possibly imagine. Our service is an act of gratitude. So we give service because Jesus is our model. We give service because it's an outworking of gratitude from our hearts. And we give grateful service first to God. How do we do that? Well, Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to work in obedience, walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today with your own, for your own good. 
Now, in the Old Testament, there are two words that are translated worship in English. Well, there's a few others, but like 90% of the time, it's one of two words that's translated as worship. Most often, when you see the word worship in the English Old Testament, the underlying word means to bow down. That's over 100 times. Second most common word translated worship in the Old Testament, about 70 times, is serve. In fact, there are four English translations that render verse 12 there as to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. I think that's a little unfortunate because in contemporary use, some of my worship leading colleagues are aware of this is a bit of a bugbear for me. In contemporary use, worship has come to mean singing songs. And the aspect of doing things for God as worship has almost been lost. Frederick Buchner puts it like this. He says, to worship God means to serve him. There are two ways to do that. One way is to do things for him that he needs to have done. Run errands for him, carry messages for him, fight on his side, feed his lambs, and so on. The other way is to do things for for him that you need to do. Sing songs for him, create beautiful things for him, give up things for him, tell him what's on your mind and on your heart. In general, rejoice in him and make a fool of yourself for him the way lovers have always made fools of themselves for the ones that they love. We tend to focus on the second aspect of worshiping God, singing to him, talking to him, rejoicing with him, in him. And forget that the underlying word in Hebrew, almost half the time, means literally to serve him, to do things for him, much as a servant in a household does things for the master. I was quite a fan of Downton Abbey when it was on TV. Downton Abbey people? Downton Downton Abbey? Yes? No? Yes? Okay. Um, For those who haven't seen it, Downton Abbey follows the fortunes of a wealthy family in England in the early 20th century. It starts in 1912, um, runs through World War I. Actually, it starts with the sinking of the Titanic um, and runs into the mid-1920s as uh, British society goes through some major transformations. And there's actually two stories going on in the series. There's the above-stairs story where the family lives, and the other is below-stairs where the servants work. And the opening sequence of each episode shows all the servants going about their, their jobs, you know, cooking, dusting, washing clothes, making beds, and my favorite, ironing the newspaper. <laughs> For some reason, ironing the newspaper always struck me as the ultimate act of service. It just seems so trivial. Actually, when I was looking this up, um, when I was preparing this message, I looked up uh, ironing newspapers on the internet, because you can do that. Um, apparently, the reason they ironed the newspapers was to dry the ink. So you get all of your hands when you read it. Now, there's people here who might quite possibly have never actually picked up an actual printed newspaper, because that's not a thing anymore, is it? But I remember when I was in high school, um, not particularly the main newspapers, but the music newspapers. The Melody Maker and the New Music Express. You would read these things and your hands would be black because the ink was cheap ink, right? And it would, it would never actually dry. So I'm wiser now. I realize that ironing the newspaper is actually, you know, a useful task. It's hardly world changing, though, is it? But it's something that one of the servants would do. 
for their master. Much as the lowest servant in a household would wash the feet of guests. So in Downton Abbey terms, maybe Jesus would have been ironing the newspaper. Not a major thing to do, an act of service. We love to talk about how we're the children of God. That's true. The most common way that Paul refers to himself in his letters is as the slave of God. And it seems to be the highest compliment that he can, play, he can pay to any of his colleagues. Slaves serve their master. It's what they do. It kind of defines who they are. And for us, one of the ways that we serve God, one of the ways that we worship him, because that's, remember, one of the translations of that word, is by serving others in his name. So he gets the credit, not us. In 2 Corinthians 9, 12 through 15, Paul says this. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of this service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He's writing to the Corinthians about giving financial aid to the Christians in Judea. But the principle is valid. He calls their giving of money this service that you perform. And the result of that service is that there are many expressions of thanks to God and others will praise God. And Paul's final words are, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. It's God that's getting the credit for the Corinthians' work of service, not the Corinthians themselves. And that's how it should be. After all, it's God's grace to us in the first place that enables us to serve others without worrying about who gets the credit. And that's not to say that the believers in Judea would have been oblivious where the money came from. Paul says, in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you. Because service builds bonds of fellowship between people. Some of us know what it's like to be supported by the giving of others. And there's a bond that is created between the giver and the receiver of the gift. And that's a good thing. But it's not why we serve. We serve out of gratitude for all that God has done for us as an act of service to him. So let's get practical. What are some examples of giving grateful service to God and people? Well, we talked about how one of the ways to translate, well, how the word that's translated as worship in the Old Testament actually means serve. So when we gather together on a Sunday morning to worship God, we are in fact serving him. That's why they're called worship services. Some people think they're called worship services because this is a service that the church puts on for its members. No, it's called a worship service because this is a service that the people of the congregation give to God. We are the ones serving, not the ones being served. That doesn't happen by itself. There's a small army of volunteers that make Sunday morning happen, right? 
there's worship leaders and musicians and greeters and sound techs and oh prayers and refreshment servers and all kinds of people, people who teach Sunday school. All of these people are offering up service to God and to each other as they serve. There's practical things that need doing as well. I'm so thankful to Amel, who went, did so much running around this week. So the church now actually has a telephone number that's registered to the derneck of the, the church. So I'm really grateful for that. But our community also serves those who are not part of St. Paul Union Church. They volunteer with the, uh, the cultural center's Tuesday Tiggers with moms and preschoolers. Or the ladies' coffee morning on Wednesdays. And we just heard this morning one of the areas of service that could do with more volunteers is the English Conversation Club on Monday and Thursday evenings. There's information about that in the, in the bulletin. Talk to Jason. You don't need to be a teacher. You just need to be a native speaker of English. And they'd love to have you. All of these are ways in which we can fulfill part of our purpose as St. Paul Union Church, to give grateful service to God and people. They're not add-ons. Okay, They're not add-ons. These are not optional extras. This is part of our purpose. They're an integral part of who we are as a community of faith. So we don't only look up to God to glorify and enjoy him. We don't only look in as we challenge and encourage one another to grow in our faith, our Christ-centered faith together, we also look out as we serve the world in Jesus' name. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, thank you that we can never outserve you. We can never do anything that would make you love us more. There's nothing we can do to earn our, your favor. But Lord, we want to show our gratitude to you. We want to show how grateful we are for all that you've done for us. And Lord, we want to do that by serving you, serving each other, and serving those around us, our neighbors, our friends, the people in this city. So Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, encourage us, Lord, show us areas where we can serve and in serving others, serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.